0: Chapter twenty of the Three Clarks This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org Recording by Paul Stevens. The Three Clarks by Anthony Trollope Chapter twenty A Day with One of the Nabbies Evening Excelsior, said Charlie to himself, as he walked on a few steps towards his lodgings, having left Norman at the door of his club remember it now now to-night yes now is the time to remember it if it is ever to be remembered to any advantage he went on with stoic resolution to the end of the street determined to press home and put the last touch to crinoline and macassar but as he went he thought of his interview with mr m'ruan and of the five sovereigns still in his pocket and altered his course charley had not been so resolute with the usurer so determined to get five pounds from him on this special day without a special object in view his credit was at stake in more than an ordinary manner he had about a week since borrowed money from the woman who kept the public-house in norfolk street and having borrowed it for a week only felt that this was a debt of honour which it was incumbent on him to pay therefore when he had walked the length of one street on his road towards his lodgings he retraced his steps and made his way back to his old haunts the house which he frequented was hardly more like a modern london gin palace than was that other house in the city which mr maroon honoured with his custom It was one of those small tranquil shrines of Bacchus, in which the god is worshipped perhaps with as constant a devotion, though with less noisy demonstrations of zeal, than in his larger and more public temples. None absolutely of the lower orders were encouraged to come thither for oblivion. It had about it nothing inviting to the general eye. No gas illuminations proclaimed its midnight grandeur no huge folding doors one set here and another there gave ingress and egress to a wretched crowd of poverty-stricken midnight revellers no reiterated assertions in gaudy letters each a foot long as to the peculiar merits of the old tom or hodge's cream of the valley seduced the thirsty traveller the panelling over the window bore the simple announcement in modest letters of the name of the landlady mrs davis and the same name appeared with equal modesty on the one gas lamp opposite the door mrs davis was a widow and her customers were chiefly people who knew her and frequented her house regularly lawyers clerks who were either unmarried or whose married homes were perhaps not so comfortable as the widow's front parlour tradesmen not of the best sort glad to get away from the noise of their children young men who had begun the cares of life in ambiguous positions just on the confines of respectability and who finding themselves too weak in flesh to cling on to the round of the ladder above them were sinking from year to year to lower steps and depths even below the level of mrs davis's public house to these might be added some few of a somewhat higher rank in life though perhaps of a lower rank of respectability young men who, like Charlie Tudor and his comrades, liked their ease and self-indulgence, and were too indifferent as to the class of companions against whom they might rub their shoulders while seeking it. The Cat and Whistle, for such was the name of Mrs. Davis's establishment, had been a house of call for the young men of the internal navigation long before Charlie's time. What first gave rise to the connection it is not now easy to say, but Charlie had found it and had fostered it into a close alliance which greatly exceeded any amount of intimacy which existed previously to his day it must not be presumed that he in an ordinary way took his place among the lawyers clerks and a general run of customers in the front parlour occasionally he condescended to preside there over the quiet revels to sing a song for the guests which was sure to be applauded to the echo and to engage in a little skirmish of politics with a retired lamp-maker and a silversmith's foreman from the strand who always called him sir and received what he said with the greatest respect but as a rule he quaffed his falernion in a little secluded parlour behind the bar in which sat the widow davis auditing her accounts in the morning and giving out orders in the evening to nora geraghty her barmaid and to an attendant sylph who ministered to the front parlour, taking in goes of gin and screws of tobacco, and bringing out the price thereof with praiseworthy punctuality. Latterly, indeed, Charlie had utterly deserted the front parlour, for there had come there a pestilent fellow, highly connected with the press, as the lamp-maker declared, but employed as an assistant shorthand writer somewhere about the Houses of Parliament, according to the silversmith, who greatly interfered with our nabby's authority. He would not at all allow that what Charlie said was law, entertained fearfully democratic principles of his own, and was not at all the gentleman. So Charlie drew himself up, declined to converse any further on politics with a man who seemed to know more about them than himself, and confined himself exclusively to the inner room. On arriving at this Elysium on the night in question, he found Mrs. Davis usefully engaged in darning a stocking, while Scatterall sat opposite with a cigar in his mouth, his hat over his nose, and a glass of gin and water before him. "'I began to think you weren't coming,' said Scatterall, "'and I was getting so deuced dull that I was positively thinking of going home.' "'That's very civil of you, Mr. Scatterall,' said the widow. "'Well, you've been sitting there for the last half-hour without saying a word to me, and it is dull.' "'Looking at a woman mending stockings is dull, ain't it, Charlie?' "'That depends,' said Charlie, "'partly on whom the woman may be, and partly on whom the man may be. "'Where's Nora, Mrs. Davis?' "'She's not very well to-night. She's got a headache. "'There ain't many of them here to-night, so she's lying down.' "'A little seedy, I suppose,' said Scatterall. "'Charlie felt rather angry with his friend for applying such an epithet to his lady-love.' However, he did not resent it, but, sitting down, lighted his pipe and sipped his gin and water. And so they sat for the next quarter of an hour, saying very little to each other. What was the nature of the attraction which induced two such men as Charlie Tudor and Dick Scatterall to give Mrs. Davis the benefit of their society while she was mending her stockings, it might be difficult to explain. They could have smoked in their own rooms as well, and have drunk gin and water there, if they had any real predilection for that mixture. Mrs. Davis was neither young nor beautiful, nor more than ordinarily witty. Charlie, it is true, had an allurement to entice him thither, but this could not be said of Scatterall, to whom the lovely Nora was never more than decently civil. Had they been desired, in their own paternal halls, to sit and see their mother's housekeeper darn the family stockings, they would, probably, both of them have rebelled, even though the supply of tobacco and gin and water should be gratuitous and unlimited it must be presumed that the only charm of the pursuit was in its acknowledged impropriety they both understood that there was something fast in frequenting mrs davis's inner parlour something slow in remaining at home and so they both sat there and mrs davis went on with her darning needle nothing abashed well i think i shall go said scatterall Shaking off the last ash from the end of his third cigar, "Do," said Charlie. "You should be careful, you know. Late hours will hurt your complexion." "It's so deuced dull," said Scatterall. "Why don't you go into the parlor and have a chat with the gentleman?" suggested Mrs. Davis. "There's Mr. Peppermint there now, lecturing about the war. Upon my word, he talks very well." "He's so deuced low," said Scatterall. "He's a bumptious, noisy blackguard, too," said Charlie. "'He doesn't know how to speak to a gentleman when he meets one.' Scatterall gave a great yawn. "'I suppose you're not going, Charlie,' said he. "'Oh, yes, I am,' said Charlie, "'in about two hours.' Two hours! Well, good-night, old fellow, for I'm off. Three cigars, Mrs. Davis, "'and two goes of gin and water, the last cold.' Then, having made this little commercial communication to the landlady, he gave another yawn and took himself away. Mrs. Davis opened her little book, jotted down the items and then having folded up her stockings and put them into a basket prepared herself for conversation but though mrs davis prepared herself for conversation she did not immediately commence it having something special to say she probably thought that she might improve her opportunity of saying it by allowing Charlie to begin she got up and pottered about the room went to a cupboard, and wiped a couple of glasses, and then out into the bar and arranged the jugs and pots. This done, she returned to the little room, and again sat herself down in her chair. "'Here's your five pounds, Mrs. Davis,' said Charlie. "'I wish you knew the trouble I've had to get it for you.' To give Mrs. Davis her due, this was not the subject on which she was anxious to speak. She would have been at present well inclined that Charlie should remain her debtor, indeed mr tudor i am very sorry you should have taken any trouble on such a trifle if you're short of money it will do for me just as well in october charley looked at the sovereigns and bethought himself how very short of cash he was then he thought of the fight he had had to get them in order that he might pay the money which he had felt so ashamed of having borrowed and he determined to resist the temptation did you ever know me flush of cash you had better take them while you can get them and as he pushed them across the table with his stick, he remembered that all he had left was ninepence. "'I don't want the money at present, Mr. Tudor,' said the widow. "'We're such old friends that there ought not to be a word between us about such a trifle. Now don't leave yourself bare. Take what you want and settle with me at quarter-day.' "'Well, I'll take the sovereign,' said he, "'for, to tell you the truth, I have only the ghost of a shilling in my pocket.' And so it was settled.' Mrs. Davis reluctantly pocketed four of Mr. Meruin's sovereigns, and Charlie kept in his own possession the fifth, as to which he had had so hard a combat in the lobby of the bank. He then sat silent for a while and smoked, and Mrs. Davis again waited for him to begin the subject on which she wished to speak. "'And what's the matter with Nora all this time?' he said at last. "'What's the matter with her?' repeated Mrs. Davis. "'Well, I think you might know what's the matter with her.' you don't suppose she's made of stone, do you?' Charlie saw that he was in for it. It was in vain that Norman's last word was still ringing in his ears. "'Excelsior!' What had he to do with Excelsior? What miserable reptile on God's earth was more prone to crawl downwards than he had shown himself to be?' And then again a vision floated across his mind's eye of a young sweet angel face with large bright eyes with soft delicate skin and all the exquisite charms of gentle birth and gentle nurture a single soft touch seemed to press his arm a touch that he had so often felt and had never felt without acknowledging to himself that there was something in it almost divine all this passed rapidly through his mind as he was preparing to answer Mrs. Davis's question, touching Nora Geraghty. "'You don't think she's made of stone, do you?' said the widow, repeating her words. "'Indeed, I don't think she's made of anything but what's suitable to a very nice young woman,' said Charlie. "'A nice young woman? Is that all you can say for her? I call her a very fine girl.' Miss Golightly's friends could not say anything more, even for that young lady." "'I don't know where you'll pick up a handsomer "'or a better-conducted one, either, for the matter of that.' "'Indeed she is,' said Charlie. "'Oh, for the matter of that, "'no one knows it better than yourself, Mr. Tudor, "'and she's as well able to keep a man's house over his head "'as some others that take a deal of pride in themselves.' "'I'm quite sure of it,' said Charlie. "'Well, the long and the short of it is this, Mr. Tudor.' And as she spoke, the widow got a little red in the face. She had, as Charlie thought, an unpleasant look of resolution about her, a roundness about her mouth, and a sort of fierceness in her eyes. "'The long and the short of it is this, Mr. Tudor. What do you mean to do about that girl?' "'Do about her,' said Charlie, almost bewildered in his misery. "'Yes, do about her. Do you mean to make her your wife? That's plain English, because, I'll tell you what, I'll not see her put upon any longer. It must be one thing or the other, and that at once.' and if you've a grain of honour in you mr tudor and i think you are honourable you won't back from your word with that girl now back from my word said Charlie. yes back from your word said mrs davis the floodgates of whose eloquence were now fairly opened i'm sure you're too much of the gentleman to deny your own words and them repeated more than once in my presence cheroots yes are there none there child oh they are in the cupboard these last words were not part of her address to charley but were given in reply to a requisition from the attendant nymph outside. "'You're too much of a gentleman to do that, I know. And so, as I'm her natural friend, and indeed she's my cousin not that far off, I think it's right that we should all understand one another.' "'Oh, quite right,' said Charlie. "'You can't expect that she should go and sacrifice herself for you, you know,' said Mrs. Davis, who, now that she had begun, hardly knew how to stop herself. "'A girl's time is her money.' She's at her best now, and a girl like her must make her hay while the sun shines. She can't go on full-lulling with you, and then nothing to come of it. You mustn't suppose she's to lose her market that way. God knows I should be sorry to injure her, Mrs. Davis. I believe you would, because I take you for an honourable gentleman, as will be as good as your word. Now there's Peppermint there. What, that fellow in the parlour? And an honourable gentleman he is.' not that i mean to compare him with you mr tudor nor yet doesn't nora not by no means but there he is well he comes with the most honourablest proposals and will make her mrs peppermint to-morrow if so be that she'll have it you don't mean to say that there has been anything between them said Charlie, who in spite of the intense desire which he had felt a few minutes since to get the lovely nora altogether off his hands now felt an acute pang of jealousy YOU DON'T MEAN TO SAY THAT THERE HAS BEEN ANYTHING BETWEEN THEM? NOTHING AS YOU HAVE ANY RIGHT TO OBJECT TO, MR. TUDOR. YOU MAY BE SURE I WOULDN'T ALLOW OF THAT, NOR YET WOULDN'T Nora demean HERSELF TO IT. THEN HOW DID SHE GET TALKING TO HIM? SHE DIDN'T GET TALKING TO HIM, BUT HE HAS EYES IN HIS HEAD, AND YOU DON'T SUPPOSE BUT WHAT HE CAN SEE WITH THEM. IF A GIRL IS IN THE PUBLIC LINE, OF COURSE ANY MAN IS FREE TO SPEAK TO HER. IF YOU DON'T LIKE IT, IT IS FOR YOU TO TAKE HER OUT OF IT. Not but what, for a girl that is in the public line, Nora Geraghty keeps herself to herself as much as any girl you ever set your eyes on. What the devil has she to do with this fellow, then? Why, he's a widower, and has three young children, and he's looking out for a mother for them, and he thinks Nora will suit. There, now you have the truth, and the whole truth. Damn his impudence, said Charlie. Well, I don't see that there's any impudence. He has a house of his own, and the means to keep it. "'Now I'll tell you what it is. "'Nora can't abide him.' "'Charlie looked a little better satisfied "'when he heard this declaration. "'Nora can't abide the sight of him, "'nor won't of any man as long as you are hanging after her. "'She's as true as steel, and proud you ought to be of her.' "'Proud,' thought Charlie, as again he muttered to himself, "'Excelcior!' "'But, Mr. Tudor, I won't see her put upon. "'That's the long and the short of it. "'If you like to take her, there she is.' i don't say she's just your equal as to breeding though she's come of decent people too but she's good as gold she'll make a shilling go as far as any young woman i know and if a hundred pounds or a hundred and fifty pounds are wanting for furniture or the like of that why i've that regard for her that that shan't stand in the way now mr tudor i've spoke honest and if you're the gentleman as i takes you to be you'll do the same to do mrs davis justice it must be acknowledged that in her way she had spoken honestly of course she knew that such a marriage would be a dreadful misalliance for young tudor of course she knew that all his friends would be heartbroken when they heard of it but what had she to do with his friends her sympathies her good wishes were for her friend had nora fallen a victim to Charlie's admiration and then been cast off to eat the bitterest bread to which any human being is ever doomed What, then, would Charlie's friends have cared for her? There was a fair fight between them. If Nora Geraghty, as a reward for her prudence, could get her husband in a rank of life above her, instead of falling into utter destruction, as might so easily have been the case, who could do other than praise her, praise her and her clever friend who had so assisted her in her struggle? Dolus and Virtus had Mrs. Davis ever studied the classics, she would have thus expressed herself. Poor Charlie was altogether thrown on his beam-ends. He had altogether played Mrs. Davis's game in evincing jealousy at Mr. Peppermint's attentions. He knew this, and yet for the life of him he could not help being jealous. He wanted to get rid of Miss Geraghty, and yet he could not endure that any one else should lay claim to her favour. He was very weak, he knew how much depended on the way in which he might answer this woman at the present moment he knew that he ought now to make it plain to her that however foolish he might have been however false he might have been it was quite out of the question that he should marry her barmaid but he did not do so he was worse than weak it was not only the disinclination to give pain or even the dread of the storm that would ensue which deterred him "'but an absurd dislike to think that Mr. Peppermint "'should be graciously received there "'as the barmaid's acknowledged admirer. "'Is she really ill now?' said he. "'She's not so ill but what she shall make herself "'well enough to welcome you "'if you'll say the word that you ought to say. "'The most that ails her is fretting at the long delay. "'Bolt the door, child, and go to bed. "'There will be no one else here now. "'Go up and tell Miss Geraghty to come down.' "'She hasn't got her clothes off yet, I know.' Mrs. Davis was too good a general to press Charlie for an absolute, immediate, fixed answer to her question. She knew that she had already gained much by talking thus of the proposed marriage, by setting it thus plainly before Charlie, without rebuke or denial from him. He had not objected to receiving a visit from Nora, on the implied understanding that she was to come down to him as his affianced bride.' he had not agreed to this in words but silence gives consent and mrs davis felt that should it ever hereafter become necessary to prove anything what had passed would enable her to prove a good deal Charlie puffed at his cigar and sipped his gin and water it was now twelve o'clock and he thoroughly wished himself at home and in bed the longer he thought of it the more impossible it appeared that he should get out of the house without the scene which he dreaded the girl had bolted the door put away her cups and mugs and her step upstairs had struck heavily on his ears the house was not large or high and he fancied that he heard mutterings on the landing-place indeed he did not doubt but that miss geraghty had listened to most of the conversation which had taken place excuse me a minute mr tudor said mrs davis who was now smiling and civil enough i will go upstairs myself The silly girl is shamefaced, and does not like to come down." And up went Mrs. Davis to see that her barmaid's curls and dress were nice and jaunty. It would not do now, at this moment, for Nora to offend her lover by any untidiness. Charlie for a moment thought of the front door. The enemy had allowed him an opportunity for retreating. He might slip out before either of the women came down, and then never more be heard of in Norfolk Street again he had his hand in his waistcoat pocket with the intent of leaving the sovereign on the table but when the moment came he felt ashamed of the pusillanimity of such an escape and therefore stood or rather sat his ground with a courage worthy of a better purpose down the two women came and Charlie felt his heart beating against his ribs as the steps came nearer the door he began to wish that mr peppermint had been successful the widow entered the room first and at her heels the expectant beauty we can hardly say that she was blushing but she did look rather shamefaced and hung back a little at the door as though she still had half a mind to think better of it and go off to her bed come in you little fool said mrs davis you needn't be ashamed of coming down to see him you have done that often enough before now norah simpered and sidled well i'm sure now said she here's a start mr tudor to be brought downstairs at this time of night and i'm sure i don't know what it's about and then she shook her curls and twitched her dress and made as though she were going to pass through the room to her accustomed place at the bar nora geraghty was a fine girl putting her in comparison with miss go lightly we are inclined to say that she was the finer girl of the two and that barring position money and fashion she was qualified to make the better wife in point of education that is the effects of education there was not perhaps much to choose between them nora could make an excellent pudding and was willing enough to exercise her industry and art in doing so miss Go likely could copy music but she did not like the trouble and could play a waltz badly neither of them had ever read anything beyond a few novels in this respect as to the amount of labour done Miss Golightly had certainly far surpassed her rival competitor for Charlie's affections. Charlie got up and took her hand, and as he did so he saw that her nails were dirty. He put his arms round her waist and kissed her, and as he caressed her his olfactory nerves perceived that the pomatum in her hair was none of the best. He thought of those young lustrous eyes that would look up so wondrously into his face. He thought of the gentle touch which would send a thrill through all his nerves. And then he felt very sick. "'Well, upon my word, Mr. Tudor,' said Miss Geraghty, "'you'll make him very free to-night.' She did not, however, refuse to sit down on his knee, though while sitting there she struggled and tossed herself and shook her long ringlets in Charlie's face till he wished her safe at home in Mr. Peppermint's nursery. "'And is this what you brought me down for, Mrs. Davis? said Nora. "'Well, upon my word, I hope the door's locked. "'We shall have all the world in here else.' "'If you hadn't come down to him, "'he'd have come up to you,' said Mrs. Davis. "'Would he, though?' said Nora. "'I think he knows a trick worth two of that.' And she looked as though she knew well how to defend herself, if any over-zeal on the part of her lover should ever induce him to violate the sanctum of her feminine retirement. There was no overzeal now about Charlie. He ought to have been happy enough, for he had his charmer in his arms. But he showed very little of the ecstatic joy of a favoured lover. There he sat with Nora in his arms, and, as we have said, Nora was a handsome girl. But he would much sooner have been copying the Kennet and Avon canal lock entries in Mr. Snape's room at the internal navigation. "'Lawks, Mr. Tudor, you needn't hold me so tight,' said Nora." "'He means to hold you tight enough now,' said Mrs. Davis. "'He's very angry, because I mentioned another gentleman's name.' "'Well, now, you didn't,' said Nora, pretending to look very angry. "'Well, I just did, and if you'd only seen him, "'you must be very careful what you say to that gentleman, "'or there'll be a row in the house.' "'I,' said Nora, "'what I say to him, it's very little I have to say to the man. "'But I shall tell him this.' "'He'd better take himself somewhere else if he's going to make himself troublesome.' All this time Charlie had said nothing, but was sitting with his hat on his head and his cigar in his mouth. The latter appendage he had laid down for a moment when he saluted Miss Geraghty, but he had resumed it, having at the moment no intention of repeating the compliment. "'And so you were jealous, were you?' said she, turning round and looking at him. "'Well, now, some people might have more respect for other people "'than to mix up their names that way, "'with the names of any men that choose to put themselves forward. "'What would you say if I was to talk to you about Miss—' "'Charlie stopped her mouth. "'It was not to be borne that she should be allowed to pronounce the name "'that was about to fall from her lips. "'So you were jealous, were you?' said she, when she was again able to speak. "'Well, my!' "'Mrs. Davis told me flatly that you were going to marry the man,' said Charlie. "'so what was I to think?' "'Doesn't matter what you think now,' said Mrs. Davis. "'For you must be off from this. "'Do you know what o'clock it is? "'Do you want the house to get a bad name? "'Come, you two understand each other now, "'so you may as well give over billing and cooing for this time. "'It's all settled now, isn't it, Mr. Tudor?' "'Oh, yes, I suppose so,' said Charlie. "'Well, and what do you say, Nora?' "'Oh, I'm sure I'm agreeable if he is. "'Ha, ha, ha! "'I only hope you won't think me too forward. "'He, he, he!' And then, with another kiss and very few more words of any sort, Charlie took himself off. "'I'll have nothing more to do with him,' said Nora, bursting into tears as soon as the door was well bolted after Charlie's exit. "'I'm only losing myself with him. He don't mean anything, and I said he didn't all along. He'd have pitched me to old Scratch while I was sitting there on his knee if he'd have had his own way, so he would.' And poor Nora cried heartily as she went to her work in her usual way among the bottles and taps. "'Why, you fool, what do you expect? You don't think he's going to jump down your throat, do you? You can but try it on, and then if it don't do, why, there's the other one to fall back on. Only if I had the choice, I'd rather have young Tudor, too.' "'So would I,' said Nora. "'I can't abide that other fellow.' "'Well, there, that's how it is, you know. Beggars can't be choosers. But come, make us a drop of something hot. A little drop will do yourself good.' BUT IT'S BETTER NOT TO TAKE IT BEFORE HIM, UNLESS WHEN HE PRESSES YOU.' SO THE TWO LADIES SAT DOWN TO CONSOLE THEMSELVES, AS BEST THEY MIGHT, FOR THE REVERSES WHICH TRADE AND LOVE SO OFTEN BRING WITH THEM. CHARLEY WALKED OFF A MISERABLE MAN. HE WAS THOROUGHLY ASHAMED OF HIMSELF, THOROUGHLY ACKNOWLEDGED HIS OWN WEAKNESS, AND YET AS HE WENT OUT FROM THE CAT AND WHISTLE, HE FELT SURE THAT HE SHOULD RETURN THERE AGAIN TO RENEW THE DEGRADATION FROM WHICH HE HAD SUFFERED THIS NIGHT.' Indeed, what else could he do now? He had, as it were, solemnly plighted his troth to the girl before a third person who had brought them together, with the acknowledged purpose of witnessing that ceremony. He had, before Mrs. Davis, and before the girl herself, heard her spoken of as his wife, and had agreed to the understanding that such an arrangement was a settled thing. What else had he to do now but to return and complete his part of the bargain?' what else but that and be a wretched miserable degraded man for the rest of his days lower viler more contemptible infinitely lower even than his brother clerics at the office whom in his pride he had so much despised he walked from norfolk street into the strand and there the world was still alive though it was now nearly one o'clock The debauched misery, the wretched outdoor midnight revelry of the world, was there, streaming in and out from gym palaces, and bawling itself hoarse with horrid, discordant, screech-owl slang. But he went his way unheeding and uncontaminated. Now, now that it was useless, he was thinking of the better things of the world. Nothing now seemed worth his grasp, nothing now seemed pleasurable, nothing capable of giving joy, but what was decent, good, reputable, cleanly, and polished. How he hated now that lower world which he had for the last three years condescended to pass so much of his time! How he hated himself for his own vileness! He thought of what Alaric was— of what norman was of what he himself might have been he that was praised by mrs woodward for his talent he that was encouraged to place himself among the authors of the day he thought of all this and then he thought of what he was the affianced husband of Nora geraghty he went along the strand over the crossing under the statue of charles on horseback and up pall mall east "'till he came to the opening into the park under the Duke of York's column. "'The London night-world was all alive as he made his way. "'From the opera colonnade shrill voices shrieked out at him as he passed, "'and drunken men coming down from the night supper-houses in the haymarket "'saluted him with affectionate cordiality. "'The hoarse waterman from the cab-stand, whose voice had perished in the night air, "'croaked out at him the offer of a vehicle.' and one of the night beggar-women who cling like burrs to those who roam the street at these unhallowed hours still stuck to him, as she had done ever since he had entered the Strand. "'Get away with you,' said Charlie, turning at the wretched creature in his fierce anger. "'Get away, or I'll give you in charge.' "'That you may never know what it is to be in misery yourself,' said the miserable Irishwoman. "'If you follow me a step farther, I'll have you locked up,' said Charlie. "'Oh, then!' "'It's you that have the hard heart,' said she, "'and it's you that will suffer yet.' Charlie looked round, threw her the odd halfpence which he had in his pocket, and then turned down towards the column. The woman picked up her prize, and with a speedy blessing, took herself off in search of other prey. His way home would have taken him up Waterloo Place, but the space round the column was now deserted and quiet, and sauntering there, without thinking of what he did, he paced up and down between the clubs and the steps leading into the park. There, walking to and fro slowly, he thought of his past career, of all the circumstances of his life, since his life had been left to his own control, and of the absence of all hope for the future. What was he to do? He was deeply, inextricably in debt, that wretch Meruin had his name on bills which it was impossible that he should ever pay. Tradesmen held other bills of his which were either now overdue or would very shortly become so. He was threatened with numerous writs, any one of which would suffice to put him in jail. From his poor father, burdened as he was with other children, he knew that he had no right to expect further assistance he was in debt to norman his best he would have said his only friend had it not been that in all his misery he could not help still thinking of mrs woodward as his friend and yet how could he venture to think longer of her contaminated as he now was with the horrid degradation of his acknowledged love at the cat and whistle no he must think no more of the woodwards He must dream no more of those angel eyes which in his waking moments had so often peered at him out of heaven, teaching him to think of higher things, giving him higher hopes than those which had come to him from the working of his own unaided spirit. Ah, lessons taught in vain, vain hopes, lessons that had come all too late, hopes that had been cherished only to be deceived. It was all over now. He had made his bed, and he must lie on it. He had sown his seed, and he must reap his produce. There was now no excelsior left for him within the bounds of human probability. He had promised to go to Hampton with Harry Norman on Saturday, and he would go there for the last time. He would go there and tell Mrs. Woodward so much of the truth as he could bring himself to utter. He would say farewell to that blessed abode, He would take Linda's soft hand in his for the last time, for the last time he would hear the young, silver-ringing, happy voice of his darling Katie, for the last time look into her bright face, for the last time play with her as with a child of heaven, and then he would return to the cat and whistle, and having made this resolve he went home to his lodgings. It was singular. That in all his misery the idea hardly once occurred to him of setting himself right in the world by accepting his cousin's offer of Miss Golightly's hand and fortune. End of chapter twenty.